You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For August 8th, 2018, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Vehicle electrification is gaining real momentum in 2018, from light-duty passenger vehicles to medium and heavy-duty vehicles to port equipment, buses, even ferries. Communities of all sizes are beginning to grapple with developing charging infrastructure for EVs, and civic planners are reconsidering their strategies in light of an explosion of new mobility options, from ride-sharing services to car-sharing services to electric bikes and scooters and skateboards, and even strange new devices like electric unicycles, one-wheels, and hoverboards. It's probably fair to say that there has never been a more exciting time to be involved in municipal transportation planning. But this rapid transition in transportation isn't without its risks, its critics, and its incumbent opposition. Big and novel questions swirl around it, with proponents and opponents becoming increasingly animated, but without much actual empirical data to rely on. Will EVs take over the personal vehicle market, and if so, how quickly? How much of a role will ride-sharing services like Lyft and Uber play in the future? What's the future of autonomous vehicles? And for that matter, what's the future for personal vehicle ownership? So many questions. Is there going to be enough of a supply of rare earth metals to support the EV revolution? Are lithium-ion batteries going to be an environmental hazard, or will we recycle them? Are EVs cleaner than high-efficiency vehicles on a life-cycle basis? Will EVs and robo-taxis increase vehicle miles traveled, and if so, what will be the net effect on emissions? How should we plan to accommodate the loads of EV charging on the power grid? And what about the loads of the medium and heavy-duty sectors? Can bicyclists and drivers and robo-taxis learn to share the road? And what is our goal anyway? What would a transition-friendly transportation infrastructure look like? Yes, lots of questions requiring deep expertise to answer, and so we are lucky to have on the show today someone who has looked into all of them. Costa Samaras is an associate professor in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Carnegie Mellon University. He directs the Center for Engineering and Resilience for Climate Adaptation, and he has published numerous studies on electric and autonomous vehicles, renewable electricity, transitions in the energy sector, and conventional and low-carbon fuels. He was also one of the lead author contributors to the Global Energy Assessment. Then in the news segment of this episode, we'll see what Honda is up to in EVs, update Elon Musk's plan to deliver free storage systems at 50,000 homes in South Australia, review a very cool multifaceted new mobility plan in Sacramento, check out a suite of incentives to electrify everything offered by Sacramento's public utility, and we'll have a glance at a futuristic new design for a personal mobility pod. But first, our conversation with Costa Samaras recorded July 10th, 2018. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Costa, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be with you. 
So you've done research in engineering in numerous areas related to energy transition, and there's an awful lot we could talk about today. But I think I'd like to focus in on your work related to transportation. You've done assessments on how the transition to autonomous vehicles will affect systems and infrastructure, including comparisons of alternative and conventional electricity and fuels. So let's dive in on that. So just to set some context first, you've looked into some of the interesting questions that are cropping up around new transportation modes, like ride-sharing services such as Uber and Lyft, as well as implications of autonomous vehicles or AVs and the requirements for charging infrastructure for electric vehicles, EVs. And since these are all core topics in my daily work as well, I'd like to start by discussing some of the common questions that I'm sure we both hear pretty regularly. So to begin with, are you fairly confident that we are transitioning to electric vehicles here in the U.S.? And if so, how quickly do you think that transition might happen? Thanks, Chris. Um, before we start, I just want to acknowledge that nobody does research alone, and a lot of the work I'm going to talk about today was done by a team of graduate students and collaborators at Carnegie Mellon and beyond, and I'm grateful to get to work with them. Now, to your question. EV transition is something that a lot of us have been thinking about for some time, and the way that it's unfolded has surprised, you know, I think even the most optimistic or pessimistic EV prognosticators. We start with some of the numbers. In 2017, U.S. consumers bought about 200,000 plug-in vehicles. Now, this sounds impressive until we remember that total vehicle sales were more than 17 million. And we've seen strong growth this year, and we might end up in the range of 250,000 to 325,000 EVs sold in the U.S. by the end of this year. I think the levels of interest of the greater consumer public have been higher than we have thought in the past, but there's still a big mountain in front of us, and that's the 250 million cars and SUVs in the United States. And so the question you asked is, how quickly do you think this transition will happen and will it happen? So to your first question, will it happen? Yes. How quickly? This is a giant stock and flow problem right? We have a... <laughs> it is. And, and you know, just for the record, I don't expect you to have the answer because I don't think anybody has the answer. Not at, you know, as you say, we're starting from a very low level and we have this huge, you know, load of, of the existing fleet that we have to overcome, uh, not to mention the, you know, annual rate of 17 million plus vehicles a year of conventional vehicles. So I, I totally take that point. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm just interested in your in your point of view on it. Yeah. I mean, I think that EV sales will continue to accelerate to the point where they become a mainstream part of the fleet. I think that we in the EV world sometimes forget that even hybrid electric vehicles are seen by many consumers as novel technology, even though they've been around in the U.S. for 19 years. And I think that as people buy more and more EVs, we get what's called the neighbor effect, where you start to get familiar with the technology because people that you know start to have these. Now, the stock and flow problem is still very real. And, you know, if we're only selling 200,000, 300,000, even 500,000 EVs in the United States per year, the transition is going to take a while. I think also the thing that we forget is that cars are capital. Cars are capital assets. For most of us, it's the first or second most expensive thing that we own right. outside of a home. And so cars are lasting longer. Half of all vehicles last 15 years or longer, and there's a pretty long tail. I can attest to that with some of my own vehicles that last quite a long time. Hmm. And this idea that 
people are going to give up a capital asset because a newer product is maybe saving some operational cost is not in line with what we've typically seen. Now, of course, we could be wrong on that, but I think we're going to have to either wait for a lot of these older internal combustion engine vehicles to exit the fleet, or we'll have to have some kind of cash for clunkers, larger program to encourage the early exit of some of these vehicles. Yeah, I agree. And I'm actually very interested in that question. It's something that I've been thinking about trying to draft up maybe a proposal for that. Anyway, so are there any risk factors or scenarios that you think about that might cause the growth of EVs in the US to be slower than what you might expect? I think the nearest term risk is reduction of policy support. I think that the EV incentives have been successful in the United States in encouraging additional adoption. There are always going to be first adopters and technology enthusiasts, but I think that the incentives have enabled a new echelon of buyers to get into the EV market. And I think a risk factor is either at the federal level or at state level as those policy mechanisms, if they were to start to go away, we would see the growth somewhat slowed. It won't reverse everything, but it will slow some of the growth down. I do think that in the mid and longer term, you know, we've heard a lot in the EV community about peak lithium and, you know, we don't want to go from importing oil to importing lithium. Now that's ridiculous because the way that lithium interacts in the battery chemistry and the amount of lithium that's in most batteries is small enough that the battery market can shoulder near-term price fluctuations. And I think, as you know, Chris, what we're really worried about in the mineral side is the cobalt. Right. And the cobalt has way more limited supply. It's much more expensive. And if we're going to stay with a cobalt-based lithium-ion battery, we will eventually slow down the growth. It won't stop, but that will slow down the growth. And I think a lot of folks, most notably battery manufacturers in China, are using a different chemistry that doesn't have the cobalt risk that the dominant chemistry has. I think all that leads to a situation with you know, technology that needs to evolve beyond where we are today in order to continue the trajectory towards energy transition. Yeah, I agree. And that's all important stuff to think about. You know, one of the questions that I hear a lot actually is, you know, whether or not we really have to worry about not only the availability of these rare earth minerals, but also, you know, the disposal of them, the toxic implications of that, you know, the way that they're mined. We've seen some pretty famous stories about, you know, child slave labor and so on being used to produce the cobalt in particular. And I've often worried about, you know, how much of this stuff is going to be recycled. Now, my sense is that these materials are valuable enough and rare enough that one way or another, we're going to figure out how to pretty much recycle all of it. But I'm not entirely sure about that. I wonder if you had any thoughts on that. Well, the disposal of batteries has always been in the mind of the sustainability community since the start of the EV transition. Even back in the 90s, Chris, there was an initial zero emissions vehicles push from California that were going to use lead acid batteries. And there was correct concern about a proliferation of lead acid batteries all over California. Now, with lithium ion batteries, I think it's different. You know, we have a problem in the United States and in the West with e-waste. And I don't think that lithium ion batteries are any different than e-waste. Now, e-waste is a big bad problem for sure. But 
a stack of computers that is equal to a lithium-ion battery sitting in a landfill, they're equally as damaging. And so I don't think any special worry needs to get into the lithium-ion disposal. Those are challenges, but they're not the first sustainability challenges I'm worried about with lithium-ion batteries. The mining implications and sustainability of the supply chain is for sure a challenge. On the recycling side, this is something where we had a really bright PhD student graduate recently who looked at this. And the recycling of lithium-ion batteries in the United States is basically most efficient by burning everything and taking out the rare earth minerals. Hmm. So that's that's not great for the environment. Right. But the alternative, you know, without any regulatory support is landfilling and then coming back and potentially mining that later. So hmm. we're not in a good place to think about the exiting of, you know, several million vehicles of the EV fleet in, you know, tens of years. But we need to ramp up how we're going to deal with disposal. For sure. And hopefully, as you've talked about, you know, we'll see second use out of these EV batteries in utilities or other kind of free sources of kind of used storage. But in the end, we're not going to run out of places in the United States to landfill batteries. What we are going to run out of is a usable climate. And we have to make some trade-offs and think about what's the most sustainable life cycle implications of energy transition. And I do think that electrification while for sure has risks and trade-offs, is a dominant pathway that we see in front of us. Yeah, and as you say, it's not a unique problem to UVs, right? Like our phones, our, pretty much everything in our houses now seems to have some sort of a little lithium-ion battery in it. There isn't any plan to get rid of that either or to recycle those, and nobody's saying that we shouldn't own phones or that we shouldn't use computers because of the e-waste problem. So you're right, there are some difficult trade-offs there. I guess we're just going to have to keep an eye on, you know, how the industry responds to this new flow of e-waste and figure out what we can do with it. So let's switch over slightly to autonomous vehicles. And I guess I'd ask all the same questions here. Are you fairly confident that we're going to transition to AVs? And if so, how quickly do you see that happening? And what are some of the risk factors that might inhibit the adoption of them? Well, autonomous vehicles and AVs are really exciting from a whole different way in that they really shift the service level of passenger travel. So EVs shift the type of fuel you're using, or AVs shift the experience and the capabilities of the vehicle itself. Now, we can go out today and buy level two or level one AV technology, things that we used to have to do ourselves, like look over our shoulder at our blind spot or hit the brakes on time when there's something in front of us. We can buy that technology right now on any mid-market vehicle. Some of the major OEMs are starting to include these as standard. And that's exciting. I mean, that's, I think, the unsung hero of AVs is not the traveling robocar where you can sleep in and drive across the country, although I would welcome that. It's really this first transition, which is allowing the computer and the vehicle to make us better drivers. And so we've done some research on how some of these early automation features can save lives. And one of our estimates is if every car in the United States had these kind of level one-ish features and they worked perfectly, in the crashes that we saw in 2012, we could have avoided 10,000 deaths. 
And so that kind of translates into an upper bound of maybe $200 billion a year in social cost savings. And I think that that gives us hope that we can bend the safety curve with AVs, because as you've seen, crashes are going up. And this is not a trend that we're happy about. For the first couple of times in a lot of years, we're seeing a series of years with increases in crashes. A lot of these increases are from pedestrians and cyclists. And so I think if we're getting smarter vehicles, we can start to reduce some of these crashes. The other things that these early automated vehicles can do is start helping to save on fuel with some connected adaptive cruise control and some eco-driving. Now, your question was, how soon are AVs going to happen? Well, AVs are here in that we can buy the lower levels of them right now. In the next five-year cycle, we'll start to see one level higher, but really there's a giant uncertainty bar after that. And whether we get to a Uber-like situation where you have a vehicle that can route itself and drop you off sooner than later is really a question of the failure rates of these technologies. It can be done. Right? Carnegie Mellon has been testing vehicles that can drive across the country by themselves with a human driver behind the wheel ready to take over for a while now. But can I go to a local auto dealer and buy any of these? That's really the question of when are these going to take off? And some in the industry predicting that this will be happening very soon in the order of three to five years. Others, and including some roboticists who've been in the space for a long time, have said publicly that it might be decades before we get to level four or level five automation where we're comfortable in selling this to the general public. I think the easiest answer on AVs is we don't know when it's coming, but it will come in some form. And I think the early form is going to be the additional spread of partial vehicle automation. The biggest hurdle in this space is getting over the hump where the human becomes the backup driver, right? So humans are terrible backup drivers. And we've seen this in some of the highly publicized crashes of these AV vehicles on the road. And that humans, you know, have a hard time paying attention when they feel like they're not supposed to pay attention. And that is one of the reasons why some companies are trying to skip over this human in the loop part of the cycle and get right to the robot does everything and the humans only respond when the robot can't in an operational domain where they're not able to take over. Now, I know I've been going on about this, but I think it's important that in energy transition, it's good to be humble. The answer to AVs is we really have no idea. Some folks think it's going to be early. Some folks think it's going to be late. I think it's prudent paradigm here is to plan for the impacts and not regret being wrong depending on what happens. (laughs) Well, I think that's a sensible stance to take on it. And you absolutely are right that it pays to be humble in this domain. There's, as I've said many, many times on this show, there's an awful lot of unknowns going forward, and we should be cognizant of that and humble about that. You know, I take your point on the difficulty of integrating a human driver once you get to fairly high levels of automation. And I guess we should explain for those who aren't familiar with it that level five, which you referred to earlier, is complete automation where there's no need for a human driver and there may not even be a steering wheel or any controls that a human could use. Level four is a step back from that where humans are expected to be able to intervene at certain points. But as you say, there's plenty of evidence from the field that humans are very bad at jumping in and taking control of a vehicle 
at those circumstances. And that would be sort of at the level four level. Yeah, at level four is when a robocar can handle itself inside of an operational design domain. And so that area might be one downtown area. It might be a county, maybe even a, a set of counties. And so at the end, if you get outside of that operational design domain, the robocar would pull over and say, you know, you're in charge now. Right. And there is a place, and as you mentioned, level five is kind of a robocar can go anywhere, anytime by itself. And that is something where we don't need to get to, to realize a lot of the energy and safety benefits. That is also a place that some experts say it's going to take quite a long time to get to. Yeah. So I think many of us who are bullish on EVs see a much bigger transition unfolding, you know, not just from moving from internal combustion engine or ICE vehicles to EVs, but also moving from personally owned ICE vehicles to a future in which very few people own cars anymore. I and mean, everybody just gets around on these robotaxis that we we're talking about, these autonomous EVs providing ride-hailing services, essentially. So the transition involves a switch from vehicle ownership to people using mobility services, as well as a transition from ICE to EVs. And this could be a really transformative change, I think, and bring with it a lot of societal benefits. For example, we might need fewer vehicles to provide the same amount of service, which would reduce the need for parking space, which is a really valuable thing that's currently being badly used, especially in our dense cities, you know, places like New York and the U.S. and San Francisco or London or Paris or what have you. But I also hear people worrying that it could bring some undesirable outcomes, particularly if it's uncontrolled. For example, one concern I hear is that on-demand ride-sharing services like Lyft and Uber are actually leading to more congestion and that they won't actually reduce fuel consumption because ride-sharing is so convenient and it will be so affordable that you know people won't be really constrained in their usage of it and therefore there would be this rebound effect in which vehicles on the road and fuel consumption could actually go up. But the evidence for either outcome is really limited because there just aren't that many ride-sharing vehicles on the road yet. There aren't any commercial-scale robo-taxis operating yet. EVs are still, as we mentioned earlier, just about 1% of annual sales in the U.S. and under a half a percent of the vehicles on the road. And besides, these studies have really tended to focus on specific cities like San Francisco, where a fair number of people who are early adopters are using these ride-sharing services. But the population in San Francisco is also hardly representative of the rest of the country on really any other measure. You know, it's an extraordinary city on so many levels. You know, it's got a very high population of young, extremely affluent, highly mobile people and so on. So I'm skeptical about any conclusions that we might base on such limited data sets. So, you know, I realize again that you don't know the answer and nobody does as to whether or not EVs will ultimately be a help or a hindrance in terms of congestion and fuel consumption and emissions and so on. But just what are your thoughts on the specific point of whether or not we can judge those things based on the available data now? This is a really interesting kind of set of questions that a lot of us in the transportation analysis community are diving into right now. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes, 
with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and join. Annual subscriptions are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions and per-episode purchases are also available. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. And let me offer a special welcome to the students and educators out there who have joined our new subscribers. A half dozen university classes are now using the show as coursework, with more joining all the time, so welcome. And if you're a student or an educator who would like to inquire about our unbeatable educational discount, just shoot me an email at chris at energytransitionshow.com and we'll work something out for you. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. In May, Honda announced that it would partner with Chinese battery manufacturer Contemporary Amperex Technology to offer a new electric vehicle called the Fit EV, also known as Jazz, in 2020 that will be priced below $20,000 and have a 186-mile range. The Honda Fit EV would match the range of the current Nissan LEAF while undercutting its price by a wide margin. Item 2. The future of Elon Musk's plan to install Tesla's battery systems in 50,000 homes in South Australia free of charge was somewhat up in the air pending the result of the South Australia Premier election in March. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network. <laughs>